Happy New Year to you all. That was just an amazing, amazing song. And I just want you to let that soak in you and pass over you. And uh, I, I find New Year's to be a really kind of a strange time. It does interesting things inside of my head. Because there's this big shift that takes place. You know, right after Christmas, I have this drive, this desire to get it all cleaned up. You know, and there's just something about taking the decorations down, though my lights are still up. Anyone else, your lights are still up in your house? Yeah, yeah. Mine have had a delay. Monday, tomorrow, I take my lights down. But there's something about taking the tree outside and getting my tree saw, cutting it in half, and then putting it on the, on the strip for someone to take care of it. I love Christmas. I really love Christmas. But I also, I like turning the corner. I like cleaning up. I like then bearing down, you know, sort of uh, getting ready for the new year. My ladies, thank you. They're heading up to the north now. Um, you know, sort of like um, buckling up and bearing down and, and, and turning into the new year with new aspirations and uh, new resolution to do things right, to start working on my taxes, you know, to, to, to set goals and move forward. But I, I think there's an irony in this week that we have, this New Year's week, as we transition from Christmas into a brand new year. And that is we shift, I do, we shift from the wonder and grace of Christmas to the law and duty of New Year's oftentimes through resolutions or through goals. Did you get that? The shift from the wonder and grace of Christmas to the law and duty of New Year's. I was reading Donald Miller. He wrote Blue Like Jazz, great writer. He was talking about resolutions and he says the number one reason we don't keep our resolutions is that they're not captivating or meaningful enough. You know, only 8% of people keep their resolutions. It's the sixth day of 2019. How you doing? Can be really depressing. Maybe they're not captivating or meaningful enough, Donald Miller says. This is what he, what he writes. He says goals, like losing weight or decreasing debt, are vague and uninspiring. Goals work much better when they're set within a meaningful story. I get this. He said Frodo Baggins would not have gone on his journey unless the fate of Middle Earth depended on it. Captivated by an adventure, by a story. And meaningful stories are usually relational. We enter a story with other people. And they're launched by an inciting event. Let me just give you an example. You want to get in shape. Let me just propose to you uh, that there's 844 million people in this world that do not have access to clean water. And if they can get clean water, they could stay alive. But you want to get in shape. So you get on a treadmill by yourself and you grind it out 
Talk about uninspiring. Just pounding it out on a treadmill. But just what if? What if someone invited you to get in shape so you could run the Los Angeles Marathon? And now you joined with some friends. The inciting event is you said to your friends, yes, I'll train and run in the LA Marathon. Now you're committed. But what if there was an organization called World Vision who had discovered how they could link up running the Los Angeles Marathon and training for it with friends, then as they raised money, they could help children get access to clean water. That's called Team World Vision. There's a South Bay group. They meet at Palos Verdes High School every Saturday morning and they train together. And they're a team raising money to bring clean water to children that don't have access to it right now. You see how that, that changes the whole equation. Now when you're out there running with friends and you've got the orange shirts on, maybe you see them running around the South Bay, they're raising money to provide clean water for children. Last year, Team World Vision gave 4.6 million children access to clean water. It's a story, it's an adventure. It's a way to get in shape that changes the world. So Donald Miller says, don't make better, better resolutions. Live better stories. Enter into a better story with other people for the good of the world. That's inspiring to me. And that brings us to our text. Our text this morning is really simple. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. It's in your handout, or you're looking at your Bible. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're on our right mind, it is for you. And then this phrase that has captured me this week. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels me. Here's another quote from Donald Miller. When God created the Garden of Eden, he didn't put a gym in the middle of it. Instead, he gave Adam an ambition that made him come alive. He told Adam to name the animals. And then he motiv motivated Adam with a love story. And then a family. And he launched man into a story and man has been designed to live within a story ever since. And last week, Tommy, in his great sermon, he encouraged us to continue to understand the big story of the scripture. I'll give it to you simply in five parts. There's creation. God created everything and he said it's very good. Number two, there's the fall. We chose to walk away from God. And an infection got into the system and it's all been going bad. Number three, God chose a people and gave them the name Israel and said, I want you to shine my light to all the nations. But Israel didn't love everyone. Israel turned in on itself and loved itself and wandered from God. Number four, God decided to take the initiative and come into our mess himself in the person of Jesus. And number five, he launched the church and he said, I want you 
to keep living the story of the good news that is loving everybody, everywhere, at all times. We're part of that story. It's the story that is the thread from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and now us, and it's not done. We're invited to be part of that story. Paul's living that story. We get to live that story. He said the love of Christ compels us. Notice in verse 13. Paul says, if we are out of our mind. Have you ever been accused of being out of your mind? Like you're a crazy person. What do you think you're doing running the Los Angeles Marathon? Who do you think you are that you can make a difference? You are, you're out of your mind. You know, Jesus' own family said that about him. The guy's lost his marbles. We have no idea what he's doing. Paul took pride in the fact that some people had said, Paul, you, you're a crazy boy. If people say we're out of our mind, it's for God. Once Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with everything you've got. It's all summed up in that. Love God. But then Paul goes on to say, would you mind bringing me my tea? I got a little uh, thing going on here. Thank you, sweetie. Paul goes on to say, but if we're in our right mind, it is for you. And Jesus said there's a second command like the first, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. The two great commands are found in this verse. Love God and love people. That's the story. That's what we get to do in 2019 is love God and love people. But this brings us to the most important question. And this is the question that we have to wrestle with as we turn from the wonder of Christmas to the duty of the new year. Is it, is it Christ's love for us or is it our love for him? How we answer that question <clears throat> makes all the difference in the world. Is it my love for God or is it his love for me? It affects how I view myself, my identity. It affects my priorities. And it certainly affects the way I approach, approach resolutions. The, the, the goals I want to do. The, the things I want to accomplish in 2019. How I come to an answer of that question is pivotal for how we move forward. Whose love is it? Note the remainder of verse 14 in chapter 5. Paul says, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. One of Paul's favorite phrases was, we are in Christ. When we are in Christ, we're enveloped in his initiative. See, the context of these verses, it makes clear that Paul is talking about the initiative that God took to send Jesus into our world to accomplish what we 
have always failed to accomplish. To be born a baby, to proclaim the good news, to be crucified on the cross, to take all of the hate and all of the anger and all of the sin of the world onto himself on the cross, and then on the third day to rise again. That's central to the gospel. And this is a love story that God invites us. And, and so many surprising other people, the door has been flung open to say, you and you and you, you, you are welcome to be in Christ. One of my favorite movie scenes of all times found in the book by Victor Hugo, Les Mis, and the 2012 film, just fantastic. And you have really this thread of a story throughout all of the film, <clears throat> the battle between Javert, who represents the law, and Jean Valjean, who represents broken humanity, who, having been put in jail and punished by the law for decades, then is released and is under parole and then goes and finds refuge at a priest's home and in the middle of the night steals all of his valuable silver, runs from the home and gets caught by the law again. And you remember this scene when he's brought before the priest with the stolen goods in a bag and the priest looks him in the eye and says, you forgot to take the candlesticks. And he gives Jean Valjean his valuable candlesticks and says, I've bought your soul for God. And it tore Jean Valjean apart. He couldn't understand. He couldn't receive that kind of graceful, unconditional, ever giving love in the face of his own inability to be a good person. And watch the film as the law, as Javert chases him and chases him. And grace will not let Jean Valjean give in. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The never-ending love of God. A great book by C.S. Lewis. It's The Problem of Pain. Although he uses really old language, listen to what he says. When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E, capital S. So even though he didn't know it, when he wrote this, he was yelling. When God says that he loves man, God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare, but get this, but in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love.
Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And this is how the Apostle John says it in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. We're able to love when we receive God's love. And I'll turn it around the other way. We're unable to love if we haven't first allowed ourselves to be loved. I would imagine there's a therapist or two who would affirm to the fact that so often our problems in relationships stem because we haven't been able to receive love. We're living under the law, under condemnation. We're living under this sense that I have to prove my worth to God, that I have to daily prove my worth to you. John says, we're able to love as we receive love. It flows through us to other people. You know, I notice this about myself. Sometimes I get critical and I can be judgmental and I can look and I can I can begin to, to to like think about how someone else is doing something and I see this critical spirit growing up inside of me and and these thoughts check me and I say you know it's it's not about that person Bill it's about you there's something that you don't like about yourself there's something that that you need to deal with inside of yourself and you're just projecting that onto other people. When I stop and realize that I'm choosing to live under law instead of God's grace, that then I can love other people. So I wanna finish by just looking at that word compel. The love of Christ compels us it's a beautiful word, and Paul here applies it to the agape love of Jesus, the, the, the love of God, agape. And I want to share some metaphors, and maybe one of these will grab you, but in terms of just looking at the different sides of this word, the love of Christ compels us. What does that mean to be compelled by the love of Christ? One way of thinking, one way of thinking of the word compel is, is it's the idea of, of, of pressing and holding something together. I'm not a cook, but I was invited to be the sous chef and help Cynthia make Christmas cookies. What were they called? Snowball cookies. And I took some dough and I squished it in my hand and I rolled it together and I pressed it together so that it would not fall apart. A wonderful Amy Grant Christmas song is Mary's song. Maybe this is a song that you could sing now. She says, I am waiting in a silent prayer. I am frightened by the load I bear. In a world as cold as stone, must I walk this path alone? Be with me now. She says, be with me now. 
And then the chorus, breath of heaven, hold me together. Maybe you feel like your life is spinning out of control and falling apart. And Paul says it's the love of Christ that will hold you together. Tommy once told me the pastors ought not to talk about stuff they don't really understand. And I don't understand atoms. But I do know that they're mysterious, very tiny particles that we can't really see. And they're made up of protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks and what they call this strong force. And when scientists talk about atoms, those of you that know a lot more than I do about it say that it's mostly empty space. What is it that makes this music stand or that flag or surfboards? What is it, what is it that makes them hold together? I'm not making a scientific observation, but I am looking at Colossians 1, where Paul says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things... <clears throat> All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And then get this. And in him, all things hold together. When scientists talk about this strong force that moves atoms and keeps them from flying apart. Theologically, the scripture says that's Jesus. The other way of looking at this word compel is the idea of being surrounded or being embraced. It's like a mother holding her baby. A strong father embracing his little girl. And you know that babies first learn about God when they look up into their mother's face. Maybe that's the metaphor that you need today. Another way that Paul uses this word is the idea Christ's love compels us. It's to grip us. It's to seize us. One time we were down at Newport Beach and I'm out in the ocean and it was waves like this and there were two high school girls playing around and there was a very strong undertow. And I came up from under a wave. These two girls came up from a wave and one of the high school girls looked at me with a panicked look in her face and she said, can you help me? And I said, yes. I said, I'm going to take your hand and I'm not going to let go. And I gripped her hand and then we swam to shore. And you can't find the bottom and you feel like the sea's gonna overwhelm you and you're gonna drown. You just know that the hand of Jesus, the love of Christ will grip you and he will not let you go. I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this word. The idea that to be compelled by the love of Christ is to be overwhelmed by his love. And Phillips says, this love is the very spring of our action. The very spring of our actions. You know that Jesus talked about when you receive this love, it'll bubble up inside you like a spring of fresh living water. Or another way to think of it is this love is the spring of our action. It's like we jump on this love like a trampoline. And it launches us 
into a new life where we're able to love. So to your resolve this year, add love. It's the starting point. That's why Paul says later in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. We really do have the opportunity to launch into a brand new year and to be filled with the love of Christ that can flow through us to other people. But as we come to the table, our reminder is that we have to receive love in order to give love. And some of us have become brittle and hardened and protective and critical and judgmental and we just can't release it to others. When we come to the table, we are receiving the never-ending love of Christ in our lives. We take the bread, the body of Christ, which was broken for you, and we dip it in the cup, which represents his blood that was shed on the cross for you. Does Jesus love you? Does he love you? This table screams out loud that he gave his life for you come and be loved and then this year do this love everyone love everyone everywhere love everyone everywhere all the time let's let our first step be compassion and empathy to take the love of Jesus and offer it to others I'm gonna pray I'll invite you to come to the table as you will will play a song and rather than just come to the table without reflecting take time to reflect to receive love that can flow through you to those around you let's pray together thank you jesus i thank you that the best in you is far far better than the worst in us and you have a, a dying and now undying commitment to us. You will never, ever let us go. May we receive that love, God, with thanksgiving and gratefulness and humility. May we release ourselves from the condemnation of the law and trust in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hidden. Never been a moment 